Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fan Fiction Tapes. I'm your host today, Maya, pronouns she, her, and I'm joined by... Vesper. Jig, pronouns he, him. And I'm our producer, Ian, pronouns he, him. All right. Today's episode is about two major subgenres of fantasy, high fantasy and low fantasy. We get to start it off with, let's do some definitions. What the hell is high fantasy? And what's low fantasy? And before this episode, we've talked a little bit about how we would define high and low fantasy. And we talked about how prevalent uh, the magical or supernatural was with respect to what we would consider the natural. Right. Um, We also did a lot of discussion on last week's episode, which our guests today will have no knowledge of because they were not there and that episode is not uh, published yet as of this recording. (laughs) So high fantasy in this case means something where the supernatural is quite common. You're going to see it in your everyday experience and low fantasy is a case where that supernatural, that magical is extremely unusual you might not see it in your life and then you might ever in your life up until one week that goes really really badly okay yeah exactly yeah i um interpreted fantasy as fantasticalness i suppose is the phrase for it um i'm actually kind of curious uh, the conversation which i was not privy to that happened uh before this about how that relates to the natural um and what then what is the natural in this case and then what sort of counts as the fantastical especially when you have worlds where the two might not really be uh you know have discernible differences um i don't know if it yeah is. i i'm using uh i suppose an excellent thing to do would be um defining our frame of reference are we going to have to redefine fantasy again? <laughs> yes. Well, if you want me to jump in, uh, Lord of the Rings would be considered high fantasy. Exactly. Right? Typically, yeah. And um, something like uh, the magicians would be considered low fantasy. Um, See? I'm not really sure how Harry Potter fits into there. Um, and then again, Again, with C.S. Lewis, right? Like, that's a debatable, maybe, topic because pretty much those stories are more about the fantasy worlds, although it is still a world within a world type mm-hmm. situation or scenario. But I don't really know how to define that. But see, now you're starting to overlap into like portal fantasy and urban fantasy <laughs> all of the fantasy completely completely other uh fantasy subgenres. um yeah well i'm not an expert see, and neither are we but it the wikipedia for you know not to sure not that wikipedia is always right defines the magicians as low fantasy and is also which is stated on its wikipedia page and uh is actually used as an example on the low fantasy page in Wikipedia. I'm actually kind of curious to mention that Lord of the Rings would count as high fantasy. And this is, again, my personal take. At least as far as the 
world of the hobbits is concerned and uh, or your you know everyday person living in say rohan or gondor to me that would feel like a world that would count as low fantasy they don't interact with the you know the fantastical very much um until it comes you know knocking in the form of two hundred thousand orcs um but oh boy it so to me those worlds at least in sort of the everyday fuel low fantasy the adventures and the mythos is very high fantasy but the everyday fuel low fantasy so i don't know if that means like just the story itself as we see it is high fantasy because it involves itself with all of this fantastical stuff and like one of the things i like about lord of the rings is it's pretty much if you know nothing going into it you don't know how fantastical it's going to get and you sort of discover that you're never given like an upfront like here's where it's gonna cap out um but the world itself seems relatively low fantasy like i mean it's when when gandalf shows up in the shire like you know a wizard hasn't been there in some time and everyone's excited because it's a wizard you know they don't interact with the supernatural very often um so i guess it's, uh if i may yeah, please because kind of answer your thing so for some of this, I think, just to explain what I'm about to explain, to make it make a little bit more sense, for, like, a frame of reference, I use our world, what we live in today, uh, the world of the very unfortunate 2023. And so, if it's present in our world, that is kind of frame of reference of natural, and if it isn't, that would be then supernatural or fantastical. Okay. And then also then to direct that is it's not the world that defines whether it's high or low fantasy it is the story that happens that sets because that that's what sets it as high fantasy and low fantasy are genres they're not settings necessarily mm. while they interact heavily with the setting that doesn't right it's if you're kind of when discussing this initially with ian we brought up a lot of The Witcher uh, because and what Jig has brought up for the case of The Lord of the Rings also applies for, I don't know, Rosie, who doesn't really leave the Shire ever. Um, and if, we, if Tolkien had told the story from Rosie's perspective where her friends go off and get incredibly traumatized by war and come back changed, then it could be low fantasy in which she really only interacts with magic when Gandalf comes by with fireworks. But for the case of Frodo, Frodo especially, who kind of grows up with tales of the fantastical mm-hmm. and then uh, chooses to go on that adventure, and Bilbo as well, where strange, wacky, fantastical shit, like, such as rings that make them invisible, is normal? That is a tale of high fantasy. Yes. And I would I would say, at least for thing with Lord of the Rings, it spends like, a significant amount of time where a time where the fantastical is still very not normal to Frodo. <laughs> and he's like, what in the yeah, world see- is going on? And that... Um, I think honestly makes it even stronger in that regard because like we get the double like this is fantastical not only to the reader but like to our perspective character 
Yeah, perspective character, I think, makes or breaks a work being high or low fantasy. Um, I'm in The Witcher when I started this explanation because Ian and I were trying to qualify some works that we wanted to talk about on the episode. And The Witcher came up as, what actually is The Witcher anyway? And then Ian said low fantasy and I said high fantasy. Arguments for that can be made either way, I think. Yeah. Um, And for me, I think The Witcher is high fantasy because of the perspective of Geralt, right? His job, find a magic thing, stab it. That's, I mean, that's that's what he does. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's like another qualification too, like where high fantasy has, you know, a lot of grandeur associated with the world and the characters. Mm Mm-hmm. I would say the Witcher tries to be a little bit more dark and a more matter of fact. However, it could be argued that like over the course of time, it's like, you know, it's a hero fantasy, right? And there is like an epic nature. And, you know, when you continue to follow the character, like things seem to revolve around him that are important. (laughs) Yeah, I do admittedly have limited exposure to the Witcher. Um, I've really only played some of the third game, so this is coming from my experiences with that game. My uh, my main exposure to The Witcher is the uh, the net the the first season of the Netflix series, so there's that as well. Oh, you don't need to watch the second one or the third one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Damn. Um, so it, there's there's a couple of things to me that are kind of the the distinction between uh, high fantasy and low fantasy. Um, one is the is a little bit of a world building thing um, in terms of the presence of the what we would consider to be the supernatural in the setting. Um, in a high fantasy setting, those supernatural elements, are a lot more commonplace and a lot more obvious. Um, Whereas in a low fantasy setting, um, typically you would not expect to find very many uh, supernatural elements uh, present. Um, And one of the reasons that I consider The Witcher to be edging into the, the low fantasy side of things is um a lot of what you deal with in the witcher what the viewpoint character deals with in the witcher are monsters right um stuff that we would consider to be from folklore um Mm -hmm. but the way that they're treated in the setting is naturalized yeah, and they come from another world and they don't belong there. And, you know, exactly. there, there's some portal elements. And, uh, well, there's magic in the world too, but um, definitely it is that, like the anti Tolkien. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that, I, I thought the it was other, just like that. Def- I didn't know about the portals. It's defined by like it's at least, you know, like you can argue that it is like an epic hero tale. Um, but. It's defined by its desire to, to, to not be high fantasy, I think. Yeah. The, the, the other distinction that I would like to get to there, touching on that, um, is the scope 
high fantasy tends to be broader scope, save the world type um, things. Um, and there's another subgenre um, sometimes that overlaps a little bit called heroic fantasy, where the scope is a little lower but still broad. Um, low fantasy tends to have a very personal scope. And Witcher definitely has that subtlety. Yeah. Again, I'm not controversial. Not a huge Tolkien fan here. But yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, it, it just wasn't that appealing to me as a younger person. Um, not because, you know, I don't like fantasy. It was just a lot. It was like very detailed. It was very epic. Um, but there, there is like this thing where everything's epic. Everything has to be epic or like everything has to be super important. You know, everything that's happening is critical. You know, uh, there's usually one or more chosen or seemingly chosen by fate, you know, all of the characters or the way things turned out, you know, it's, it's always some type of, there's always like a multi epic component to, to I think like uh, high fantasy or the, which makes, you know, things like Tolkien kind of push out of its genre or like just the broader fantasy genre into like something easily definable. Right. You know, kind of, don't want to use the word cheesy, but, um, you know, I don't have any any uh, loyalty to Tolkien. So, uh, you know, again, it's like, you know, it, there's a lot of like cheese, I guess. Um, you know, not that literature is bad that. Uh, uh, that follows that kind of narrative, you know, where everything's some type of faded event, you know, that the gods somehow pulled the strings to make happen, you know, maybe there is, you know, a bigger component on the astral plane, you know, to, to what transpires down below, you know, and, you know, all those things. But I think that's kind of like how Tolkien pushes out of fantasy genre, whereas something like The Witcher is very personal. There's a lot of, there's, there's a lot more detail in like the personal relationships not that Tolkien doesn't do that, but sometimes it's pretty pretty raw and gritty. You know, you can very easily view it as if you're not reading a fantasy mm -hmm. book. You know, I mm. think because it's it's a lot more connectable. You know, because there is less like super epic stuff happening uh, sometimes. You know. Yeah, I think. I think for me, Tolkien was one of the early, like, proper fantasy things I'd read. Um, like, not one of the kind of more niche subgenres, but, like, standard fantasy. Mm -hmm. so, I, so I have a little bit more loyalty to the concept. I also kind of feel a little differently about some of the stuff. Um, so I think uh we my family read the hobbit on a road trip when i was real little um uh, i say real little but i was like probably fifth or sixth grade at the time mm -hmm. 
And I was just like, whoa, this is cool. And so then uh, borrowed the book for one day and finished it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, have you ever heard of the Seinfeld effect? I have not, I don't believe. Okay. I'm going to refrain from making jokes here. Continue. Uh, um, okay. So y- y'all have heard of the, 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 the hit sitcom, hit uh, 90s sitcom Seinfeld? Of course. Starring Jerry Seinfeld. I have seen it on the TV as my younger sister watched it while I passed through the room. Um, So for the younger people here, did it uh, seem like a groundbreaking TV show? I have not seen it. I know of it. Yeah, I've not seen more than like two to five second clips. Does the impression that it leave you with make it stand out in any way from any other sitcom that you've seen two to five clips from? Yeah, I know I where you're going with this, small say no. Okay, the Seinfeld effect uh, is, in fact, uh, that, yeah. Um, it's the tendency for a, uh, a work to, uh, a work that was genre-defining when it first came out to seem cliché and and stale to people who come to it later precisely because all of the cliches originate from it. Um, and Vesper, I think you're, you're having a little bit of Seinfeld effect here with uh, Tolkien precisely because uh, The Lord of the Rings, which was written in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, no, I'm well aware is- yeah, yeah, yeah. I just it, think it, the Chronicles of Narnia is a superior <laughs> work. I, you declared one today. Oh, having also read the Chronicles of Narnia at a young age, actually, I probably read Chronicles of Narnia first. Um, I, I think I did as well. Wow, how's that for a Portal fans? <laughs> oh, come on, it's, it's far more interesting. Like looking into a water puddle in a magical forest that you stumble upon right and i mean to me it's just the way it's written i don't like hate tolkien people i don't like not respect tolkien you know as much as i joke uh it's just to me that was the more interesting Mm -hmm. work but i was already like hyper stimulated at the time like always growing up Mm. as like with everything i was interested in like everything so that might have something to do with why Narnia appealed to me, maybe the subtlety of what was happening or just the pacing, you know, people being dragged into it rather Mm -hmm. than, you know, I might've been caught actually by the low fantasy aspect to it in a way, you know, as opposed to, I'm already like big into swords and fantasy and fighting and dragons. And I, you know, consumed every kind of media you possibly can. So, you know, that could be also like, I guess what I'm closing with on that is like, that's also can be like another defensible way to, to also invoke Seinfeld effect. Right. Hmm. So, you know, I'm just, putting that idea out there because that would be another good example like also that aspect of why i might have chose the that over tolkien 
you know, not to say that I chose, but like one, I why you prefer it a little bit kind of didn't really finish. And then one, like I just even though I shouldn't have been reading books from start to finish at the time, because that's people, you know, at my age hated reading. I went through that <laughs> whole book, you know, and I continued to go through, you know, um, C.S. Lewis stuff. Yeah, I am. Um... But Seinfeld effect, right? <laughs> I was always kind of more drawn to the uh, concept of someone who's just a dude. You know, someone who's just kind of otherwise fairly yeah. normal can, in fact, do cool shit. I think that's probably part of why I liked Lord, Lord of the Rings and why I like The Hobbit, because Frodo and Bilbo aren't anyone special. They're just guys. In fact, they're, they kind of don't do anything on their own. Uh, Bilbo is, at the open of The Hobbit, content to just kind of vibe. And it would behoove you to also you know, know that that's... If you go through the different uh, C.S. Lewis books, that's kind of that's kind of the story, but it happens with different characters, you know, new characters in each book, like Prince Caspian, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, The Magician's Nephew, probably more what I was talking about with the portals. Yeah, um, my problem is I viciously sink my teeth into and blurbo the first <laughs> character I see. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the different characters come in and out. But I, I, I don't think it's like, I think when you, like, when you pull things apart like we are, it's kind of really fairly a little bit more suspicious that, like, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien would hang out and write together. <laughs> because I think you know, there's there's a lot more happening in common, you know, that goes deeper than surface surface level. You know, and to imagine them chumming around and like reviewing each other's works and ideas and stories and their progress, which I'm sure they did. Otherwise, they wouldn't be hanging out regularly Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and being writing buddies. You know, I think that's kind of like the bigger picture of that yeah, given that very like, much involved in each other's uh you know work you know they're basically desked together yeah you know, just working on separate things um yeah from my experience just writing in the general vicinity of other people especially other writers y'all, y'all are going to influence each other to put stuff you want in each other's yeah. stuff it's you're not even necessarily going to do it consciously but it's going to happen you're gonna yeah. go, ooh, but what if you did this? And then they'll go, ooh. And you know, you'll start bouncing ideas off each other like rubber duckies. Yeah, and it's you know, uh Narnia is a tricky one, right? Because there there's elements of low fantasy. But it's the nature of it is they kind of devolve or evolve into like a high fantasy. You know, um, in a weird way, um, in different ways throughout the different books, you know, the different plot points and 
you know, the return and disappearance of different characters. But the reason why, you know, injected Narnia into this is is for that reason, you know, because it actually isn't considered low fantasy. But, you know, if you're familiar with the first book, it it starts off in the way that a lot of low fantasy things do. And that it drags normal people from a normal world and uh you know they eventually return to it but there's an overarching narr- arcing narrative like um arching overarching narrative an arc is an arch whatever um <laughs> that uh kind of plays on like so even though i guess what i'm saying is even though like they take place in a high fantasy setting um there are multiple books obviously and the book is self-aware right it doesn't like just make it disappear that the kids are from a different world and it kind of touches on those topics throughout throughout the thing like there are you know there's a element of like one of the children not wanting to believe what happened was real you know like those things are touched upon you know um and you know of course getting dragged back into the world again um so it, I think uh, Narnia kind of like, you know, um, tiptoeing, tiptoeing around that genre. Um, but since the majority of the book, you know, like at what point do you call something high fantasy, right? If it's 99% taking place in a epic high fantasy world. Um, yeah. And even though Prince Caspian, right, like for instance, is another like interesting one because um you know it 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 does a thing where okay the kids from the actual world um <laughs> that it occurs but you know he he's a nobody but a somebody but you know and then you know it becomes like a hero's tale you know is he magical no which is the interesting thing um, you know, his, his, his beginning in, in that book is, is, you know, pretty dark, actually. And the, the, con- the conclusion, you know, it, 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 that whole book touches on, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's more Game of Thrones than anything. Let's put it that way. You know, it does contain, you know, descriptions of violence, um, which is also very interesting. You know, um, I was going to actually propose a segue into Thrones in a little bit, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like th- definitely a lot of ideas were played with, but like at what point is that also like, you know, maybe it is still just high fantasy, you know, because there are characters that have like supernatural powers that come in to try to influence and, you know, and whatever mm-hmm. they're going to do. Right. Um, but it to me, like like even between the different books of c.s lewis like that almost again like because of its content might actually be dwindling down into just more of a fantasy yeah writing whereas you know like the lion the witch and the wardrobe is high fantasy mm-hmm. well and i think it's also quite um I mean, we've been talking about you know arnia and or the rings, but I'll bring thrones in this as well. Like you can actually have different parts of a work sort of be doing, be in low fantasy or high fantasy. Like I think 
a lot of people have the tent he described. All three of those is high fantasy for you know several of the reasons we've discussed: be it the setting, be it the story itself, the perspective, the story itself viewed through the the characters that were given. Um, and I think that sort of means that there isn't a uh, the, <laughs> you can't really pin a needle in it and say ah yes this is this is exactly what it means. Um, and there was a definition that we gave of, I think, yeah. low fantasy earlier, and I am trying to remember it because it was going to be sort of a useful tie into all three. Well, it's like it's not until something becomes like meme memeable, right? Like where something hmm. has so much of something, right, mm -hmm. on the canvas that like you can like say you might as well call that high fantasy, even though like, you know, there's a lot of works that arguably, you know, are less popular but better that use the different color palettes a little more yeah. interestingly you know and uh maybe not as much of one thing or this thing and uh piece that together so the the two criteria that i gave earlier for for how i define the low fantasy and high fantasy ends of this spectrum um was how much super how many supernatural elements mm -hmm. there are present um, and supernatural relative to our world yeah. and the scope and scale of the narrative. So it's actually a bit of both of those that I had in mind. And that's sort of that scope and scale is... I mean, yes, you can look at as the broader narrative, but of course, you know, in any narrative, you've got the, the sub-narrative, subplot, you've got your B-plot, and you've got all these different... all these different strings going different places. And... Those subplots don't necessarily have to conform to whatever the main plot is doing in terms of where it sits in high fantasy or low fantasy in both scope and scale and in both, you know, how it's is it focusing on character stuff, is it focusing on massive world changing, changing events, is it focusing on the fantastical, or is it focusing on the mundane? Because like in Game of Thrones you know, at least in books one and two, as far as your you know, in the chapters following Rob Stark, it's very mundane. Like, yes, he is a king, or becomes, and yes, he is fighting this massive war, which will have a huge influence on the politics of Westeros, but there's really no magic in that. Um, the other characters are doing magical stuff and fantastical things, but he's not. Um, and then other times, it's, you know, sort of goes, you know, contracts all the way down from instead of world changing events, no, we're looking at just this one character's personal life, like some personal crisis they're dealing with, and there's no magic whatsoever, and it feels very low fantasy, and then one chapter over, we're dealing with, you know, <laughs> Danny and the dragons, and it is fantastical and epic in every way possible. Um, and so I think a story isn't necessarily, you know, people will describe it as it's this or it's that, but it's not necessarily beholden to any term. I, you know, smacking a label on it doesn't doesn't determine what it can and can't do. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've used Thrones for this, but you could you could look at the same thing in Lord of the Rings or in Arnia and, you know, one chapter is dealing with one thing that fuels low fantasy and the next one isn't. That's of course, that's not unique to these three either. It's the entire entire body of literature that's out there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Exactly the point I was making. There does seem to be a trend in particularly modern 
literature for things to mm-hmm. blend genre. Um, and so even when you have works that are firmly staying in the fantasy uh, camp, um, like Game of Thrones and The Witcher, they still wander around a lot within that fantasy setting. Um, depending on which character perspective you're looking from, um, what part of the world you're looking at, uh, it can look low fantasy or it can look high fantasy or it can land somewhere in the middle. Yeah, or it can turn into like a raw, gritty, potty mouth comedy and then turn into like a very intense horror scenario. You know, it, I guess it also depends on how, how what the scenario is being written is depicted in the style of writing at the like because i think you know maybe that is another strength to like something like the witcher where so many different things happen but you feel you kind of feel good about what's happening you know you don't necessarily disbelieve you know yeah that Geralt's a foul-mouthed whatever you know and then things are actually kind of funny but then you actually then you believe he's like you know, walking in the dark woods by himself. And, you know, you feel the horror element of, like, actually hunting a monster, you know, depending on, you know, and sometimes there's a journey, you know, that that happens between, uh, you know, the outset of searching for, you know, the creature and actually even finding the creature, you know, where the majority of the interesting things do happen right leading up to that i'm a big fan of mixing genres unfortunately to my knowledge yet no one has decided to go and mix mcgyver and urban fantasy and if you did i would love you forever and ever and ever <laughs> okay well i've done it but did you say mcgyver i did say mcgyver Love you. Yeah, I'm trying to. What a great, like, weird '80s theme song too. It's just, it's good enough to like give you the the energy and the vibes, but then there's something just off a little about the melody to make it seem slightly discounted compared to the other '80s theme songs at the time. You know, it's like they had like 95 percent of the budget <laughs> for that theme song. <laughs> They're five percent away. There's just just a little bit off about that melody, but MacGyver's great. Like MacGyver's in a weird <clears> way, like low fantasy. I mean, I would argue I... because they're they're. I mean, what's happening yeah. is like not at all believable. Like, and the fact that it keeps happening to him, so you can almost say like there's elements mm-hmm. of like high fantasy MacGyver, in MacGyver fantasy. right? Because he seems to be the chosen one. <laughs> He seems to be the chosen one. All these like incredibly complex, important events that for some reason he is the hero and savior of revolve around him. You know, like and see that's that's what I'm saying. It's like there's Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's what that's the cheese I'm talking about. When something lays so hard into something, MacGyver is a good example of like low and high fantasy, right? Like I think a lot of these cheesy type you know, whatever we just, you know, things that are fun to watch, you know, and mm-hmm. something always happens. Right. And it's, you know, very formulaic and, you know, it's kind of the same things and you're okay with that. You know, it's like having pizza 
three times in the week for dinner. And um, yeah, it's, I think, I think MacGyver is both has elements of high fantasy and low fantasy, but then it actually only takes place in the real world. It's really, really strange. Your mention, your mention of cheesiness and the way that we keep going back and forth on like Game of Thrones and Witcher um, is actually making me think there of, of another thing um, that kind of changes between high and low fantasy, and that is how black and white the morality is. Um, high oh. fantasy actually tends to have more of more of a black and white uh, look to it. You know who the good guys are and you know who the bad guys are. And it tends to be the good guys are the good guys because they do good things and anything that the good guys do is good and, you know, vice versa for the bad guys. Um, Whereas low fantasy tends to take a more um, complex shades of gray approach to the morality. Um, Tends to. Um, There are exceptions to that sometimes. Um, Oh, such as okay. Redwall. We're going here. Oh, it's been so long. It's been so long. <laughs> We're going there. Redwall definitely has a fantastical setting. Um, one of one of the hallmarks of of fantasy that I mentioned in last week's episode, but um, only Maya has heard this definition, so I'm going to restate it here. Fantasy looks backward. Some key aspect of the setting is looking backwards into our past in some way. Um, Typically in a way that subtly or not so subtly glorifies it. Um, And how exactly that manifests kind of differs differs. from from specific fantasy genre to, to specific fantasy genre. Um, but typically you get, you know, this sort of uh, medieval European setting that tends to be kind of the default for fantasy settings, at least for us Westerners, right? So Mm -hmm. you have that with Redwall, uh, this pastoral medieval England setting, but there's no humans all of the people are talking animals. But other than that, 99.9% of the magic that happens in any Redwall book is sooner, sooner usually, rather usually sooner than later revealed to be some sort of um, trick. Like the only kind of supernatural stuff that happens is when you know the the chosen protagonist might get a vision from um the yeah. the spirit of Martin the warrior so in the sense that the setting is very grounded that the scope of the stories tends to be uh not so world spanning um I, it's world-spanning in a way, though, because it's the known world. I mean, overall, um, if you if you look at the series as a whole, it tr- travels very widely. But 
each of the individual narratives tends to be focused on a per- solving a particular problem yes. at Red Wall or in its environs. However, the morality yes. is very black and white. You pretty much always know that a friendly woodland creature is going to be a friendly woodland creature by what sort of woodland creature it is. Uh, and conversely, you know that a creature is going to be villainous depending on what sort of creature it is. Yeah, that's racist. Yeah. <laughs> kind of is, yes. Uh, I, I, I was about to say it is. fantasy racism. Well, when you anthropomorphize or like uh, give them like a human-like consciousness, then it seems racist. Yeah. It's it's explored a little bit in in one book, but yeah, there's not there's not even a lot of subversion of it. <laughs> Interesting. No. I'm not familiar with. Isn't Redwall. there like one subversion attempt that ends poorly? Outcast of Redwall, yeah. The if I, if I'm recalling that one correctly, it's been it's been a minute since I've read it, but it does center around um, a orphan baby ferret or stoat who's found in a ditch outside Redwall after fen- after they fend off yet another vermin invasion. Um, and they decide, rather than to kill the baby, because, again, good guys always do good things in Redwall books, they take him in. There is a little bit of moral complexity in the book because the the vermin child is raised in Redwall but is constantly getting into trouble and it's unclear exactly how much of that is you know the setting saying that uh, ferrets and stoats are always going to be bad capital B uh, and how much violent. of that is the the Redwallers prejudice towards ferrets and stoats kind of inclining them to act out. Also, like, children do mischief. Yeah. I have never once known a child who didn't do mischief. <laughs> Granted, I haven't known a lot of children, but... I think, I think that it does tend to lean in that book more towards Redwallers have prejudice towards vermin, because they're are always yeah. children getting into trouble in Redwall books. Um, and it is very well, clear goodness. that it's... <laughs> Sorry. The, the, the outcast is getting treated a lot more unfairly, although they do also seem to act out a bit more. So, like, I tend to come down on the side that it's, it's Redwall or Prejudice, but, like... I think Brian Jocks was trying to write some ambiguity into it and possibly reconcile it with the fact that in every other book, vermin and verminous creatures are yeah. bad. Oh yeah, for sure. Like that might have even been been like the intention behind the writing too, because like make you know a- adding you know that the character does seem to get in this bit more trouble if you're paying attention but also that everyone else gets into trouble if you're paying attention um mm-hmm. another layer of moral complexity to to the situation and also like 
you know, um, that whole layer of if you were treated differently, you know, maybe your behavior only wouldn't be more noticeable or highlighted, but it might change the way you interact with the environment around you, which might, you know, explain oh, like, if, if a rebellious I was... child or somebody responding to a hostile environment, you know. If I was treated marginally differently or even marginally less afraid of social rejection, I would have become Catra as a yeah. child. I know this. I probably would have been, you know, if I was treated differently than other children, I'd probably be up to more trouble than, you know, than just a little bit more than other kids. You know, because I'd, I'd be I'd be very, very angry. <laughs> I didn't start getting into trouble TM, capital T, capital M, until I was about high school age and I could get up yeah. to serious trouble. Jig knows what I'm talking about. If I may sort of, I know we've been, I don't know if this is getting us back on track or leading us further astray. Um, Welcome to the ADHD talking hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ian, you mentioned earlier Red Wall um, and the um, the setting has, is very different than our world, obviously, because we have talking animals so that's fantastic well, and high fantasy in terms of it being very different the conflicts aren't though the conflicts are there's generally not a lot of fantastical stuff um it gets super adventurous but there's not really magic um and because i mm-hmm. love world building to a fault and sort of you know if you have a setting that's very fantastical, it, I, I lean towards it doesn't actually necessarily mean that the story has to be super fantastical. And so you can have this like weird, you can have a really alien to our world setting, but if all the characters treat it perfectly normal, the the story might actually not even feel that fantastical. Um, and Redwall is sort of like that because the world is... I would say it's, you know, incredibly alien, because other than all the talking animals, it still feels, you know, things behave like they do in the real world. Um, But you sort of almost forget about that when you're dealing, you know, in the the story and the conflicts and everything. It's like, oh, wait, this is actually a very different world. Um, Whereas, oh, what's a good example? Yeah, if you have a, a world with that is very much like our own, and I'm going to use Game of Thrones for this, even though, yeah, okay, it's not really, but at least for the everyday, you know, there's there's some level of the mundane in there that might be. Um, but then you introduce, like, a single magical element, even though there's not necessarily actually a whole lot of magic in Game of Thrones compared to other fantasy series. Um, it can feel very fantastical because that one element is, like, overpowering compared to how mundane everything is. Um so it's sort of like a it's relative depending on what gets the emphasis in the story um like you know in thrones everything could be completely feeling low fantasy and then you know any one of the like supernatural characters walks in the room and boom everything's different now because there's a you know a literal wizard um, in the presence of all the other characters, and not only to the author, not only to the reader, but also to the characters, it feels unnatural. Um, yet the world, it's 
小 feel 小 fantasy. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with you. I think part of it too is you know like it's not it isn't just about the content. Um, I think Ian kind of alluded to that too in a different different way for some reason um, earlier, but it's all the style of the writing. Mm-hmm. You know what's nuanced, what's emphasized, what's focused on. You know um, whether or not you know the writing. You know, even like how much the writing style shifts from one type of event to, like mm-hmm. again, you know, an event that's a little bit more horrifying and meant to, you know, be more of a. Uh, a, th- a thrilling uh, situation uh, or meant to kind of keep you on your toes. You know, I think there's, there's, there's indications or like little, little uh, nuances in the writing style. Um, how like each, each part of a story, you know, want to be perceived, you know, um, like that's where the writer's voice comes in, I suppose. Yeah, and I hate to um, just kind of whack this topic in the knees, but we are low on time. This was something I really wanted to mention during the episode. Uh, And we unfortunately, we are very short on time. How do the laws of magic, um, which in particular I'm referencing Sanderson's laws of magic, interact with the... Differences between high and low fantasy. I'm not not the one. I'm not an expert on this. Yeah, I am actually pulling that up so I can read them off verbatim for our listeners. Um, yeah. While you're looking that up, um, I'll I'll just give a quick overview of um what are Sanderson's laws of magic and why do they exist? Um, and this has to do with, with the distinction between. Uh, hard magic and soft magic. Uh, soft magic being stuff like Lord of the Rings, um, where, and a little bit Game of Thrones, I guess, um, there is magic. Uh, the protagonists don't really have access to it. We aren't really told as uh, readers what the limits and capabilities of magic are in the setting. Uh, Whereas with hard magic, um, it is basically science. Yeah. And Sanderson is, in particular, Brian Sanderson is known for kind of being Mr. Hard Magic. Hence there being Sanderson's Laws of Magic, which are his guidelines for creating a magic system. Which I will say I believe apply quite well to both hard and soft magic systems. Yeah, you apply if you're if you're trying to create one one sort of system, you do it one way, and if you're trying to create the other, you do it another way. So the first law is an author's ability to solve conflict with magic is directly proportional to how well the reader understands set magic. And to use Lord of the Rings as an example again, because it's almost everyone has is familiar with Lord of the Rings, magic doesn't really solve many problems throughout the plot. 
most of the time, people have to solve problems. And the magic is not super well-defined. It's, you know, Gandalf shows up and uh, does a magic thing, and now there's no more Balrog. But isn't generally accepted that magic exists in Lord of the Rings and that there are other mages? There's a... There is a very defined recorded history of magic in the world. Like, isn't, isn't, isn't that a part of the world? Whereas something like Game of Thrones, it's like very secretive, very hidden. Not a lot of people know. And, you know, one of the few instances, you know, of it is like, you don't even know what the entity is or if the entity is God themselves in a human form, you know, oh, like the, yeah. the, the, the many faced God or whatever. So, I mean, I, I feel like Lord of the Rings naturalizes magic though, in a weird way mm-hmm. in that it is like the accepted thing that there are evils in the world that have magical powers. There are, there is a way to study magic. You know, there are wizards that live well with beyond their means and I've... kind of carry this stuff down. I think Game of Thrones is a little more tucked away. I would say in Lord of the Rings, it's magic exists, but it's pretty much only going to be used by things that have it have magical power by the act of the act of the gods. Like it's not yeah. there. I I wouldn't say there's a study of magic. It's sort of like there are wizards, but they're wizards because the 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 Valar said, okay, they're going to be wizards, and they already decided who the wizards are going to be. Um, yeah, and it's and Game of and I would agree though Game of Thrones is even one wizards. step beyond that where it's like magic is super obscure. Yeah, I see my spotters. I have to go basically right this instant because the library closes in two minutes. Okay. Um, before you run off, do you have anything that you want? to plug for the listeners i'm not exactly sure um i always say if you want to know stuff about Lord of the Rings, read the Silmarillion, but like i feel like that's just that's just how it is um and then read it again and again and again and again because there's always more to get out of that book um <laughs> but otherwise no i think that's that's really it all right well thank you so much for having me i'm going to skedaddle all righty bye been good having you yep. absolutely yeah thank you for being here all right, so the way that, that both of those relate to Sanderson's first law, though. Um, Which is also a Seinfeld thing, by the way. Eh. Because none of this is trivial to the modern gamer. Exactly. Which is the majority of people now. These are all like... It certainly seems like it. These are all like... Uh, I feel like people would sit down and write and like not even think consciously about using these laws to try to create. <laughs> yeah, th- these things being um, written down is very uh, useful. Yeah, this this almost seems. I don't know how old this is, but it seems ancient. Um, this is not very old. Sanderson's only been writing for about twenty years. Um give or take some time before his publication history. He, he, he was first published in 2005. But the, the article that I pulled up from his website only lists copyright 2018. So yeah. <laughs> recent. 
Yeah, like the summary, like to me, is like have some basics behind your magic systems, have some more behind it, you know, have varying degrees of, you know, skill, you know, like just it's it's just it, basically I'm reading this as make sure you just include like basic basic details. Yeah. Um... So I'm I'm thinking of of the few occasions in Lord of the Rings where um, we have protagonists who have access to magic, um, typically in the form of elf-made tools. Ah. Um, I wasn't even thinking of the One Ring. I was actually thinking more along the lines of like uh, the um, sting, the the elf forged ah. dagger that uh, Frodo has, or um, the file of Galadriel. I forgot about that. I need. I think I need to reread um, Lord of the Rings. Then, oh, I was already thinking about rereading. Uh, Narnia after this episode. That's uh oh, yeah, uh oh, even what happens in the end of Narnia, you'll be prepared for because it's something a lot of TV shows and movies do now, or is they just they they completely screw up the ending. <laughs> so you'll yeah. be well prepared for like just accepting that it was fun while the ride lasted when you get towards the end. <laughs> Yeah. Should so you both choose of, to get to the end. Both of those tools that I met I mentioned, um the the blade sting and the file of Galadriel are magical items that are very key to I I believe it was Sam killing or driving off Shelob, which allows them to actually get into Mordor. That is that was a major narrative obstacle overcome by the protagonists using magic and the uses of those items were fairly clearly explained like a book earlier when they get them yeah you know sting glows in the dark one ring makes you invisible i don't remember the file um <laughs> it contains it it contains light from a sacred star which uh, drives back the darkness. And Shelob being a creature of the darkness, she is driven back by the pure light of the star. Honestly, I can't blame Shelob for that. You're vibing in your cave. You've been there for a while. Uh, for listeners who haven't uh, been caving, uh, I actually have a couple of times. It's dark in caves. You can't see shit. So, like, imagine how flashbang you see when you turn on an app on light mode after using it on dark mode for a while. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, crank that up to, like, 11. Bro, I'm not a creature of darkness exactly, but I'd fucking get the hell out of there. Oh, yeah. Um. Okay, that's not Sanderson's only law of magic, right? Yes, that is only the first law. He has three. The second law, which, um, like in physics with Newton, is one of the more interesting ones. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, on this text, it only says limitations greater than sign powers. Uh, although the way I've usually heard it phrased by Sanderson and by others is that limitations are more interesting than powers. Uh, and kind of one of the ways I think of visualizing this is if you're playing in a video game, it's generally 
fun for longer to just play the game rather than to just turn on cheats, give yourself everything. That gets kind of boring because there's no there's no challenge to it. There's no yeah, there's no point in playing. Just yeah. wonder wonder. Well, maybe would. There is a point in things like Minecraft, which is part of what I was thinking oh, of when saying this, because, oh, okay. you know, creative yeah. mode, but in a competitive generally limitations are going to be more interesting to read than powers. This actually reminds me of uh, something I've read. Um, Magic the Gathering designer Mark Rosewater um, mm-hmm. has has blogged or frequently blogs about designing sets, and one of his um tenets is that restrictions breed creativity yeah we're talking about like basic stuff game design where the details and basic mechanics are everything um yeah essentially it's it's interesting how much overlap there is between game design and writing narrative well i can take it even further i can take it to its art in general um art in general is you know it's again like you know and actually this goes back to something i kind of said earlier about palette and like how much you use and what your choices are so it's actually kind of an overarching like it's basically very very high level basic art you know um that's one of the things they teach you in basic art is Try not, and same thing with like playing music, right? Like nobody wants to hear somebody like play as many notes as they can necessarily. It doesn't make a guitar solo a better solo. Silence can be just, silence is often more interesting than uh, noise. Yeah, so it it goes up to like just art, art theory in general. Um, is the absence of space is also important structure, you know, just carefully curating what you're doing as you build it out is you know very key the absence of things is important as for how this interacts with high and low fantasy you actually set me up really well with that with the absence of things is important uh low fantasy works a lot with the absence of the fantastical um to make the fantastical feel a lot more special yeah um we didn't talk a lot about the magicians but Actually, the, the the there's a lot of key moments in that show where, you know, um, there's some really hardcore stuff in that. Um, I personally really like that show. I haven't watched it, but I don't... A lot more than Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of a low bar. That's, that's rude to magicians, frankly. Yeah. And they they had some weird stuff like towards the end too. Like you don't want to talk about you know like eh, you know there's some influence by like uh, I don't know I don't know how some of the stuff happened towards the end. Um, some of it's really great, and then it's like why did you do that? Um, level cheesiness, but uh, they they do the same thing. They create these really intense special moments. Um, it's it's used um, very specifically that way. You know, like literally having a character kind of like just trying to hide out in the real world. Right. And a very evil entity finds that person. And it's very, um, you know, it, 
it it pops. It pops in the darkest way possible. You know, you feel it, um, especially when you know the history and the characters, and you know, and that kind of becomes like a. I don't want to say like a, what you'd have like a game play loop, story loop in that particular chapter of the story that becomes like the core element. Um, it's very haunting, um, but the magicians plays into that pretty well where they uh you know they save the magic um and then you know sometimes they they you know when they blow their load and the magicians no, no pun intended <laughs> but you know it it works for magicians people <laughs> use filthy language um they they did they blow their loads you know what i mean and um, <laughs> they, they 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 do it in fun ways you know and sometimes it's like really inconsequential nonsense you know when that occurs and you know they're they they include accidents, magical accidents, which is great. Uh, uh, they run the gamut in the magicians, and they have a lot of fun. But it, I think it's to me, it's a good example of like um, the balance between like keeping somebody invested in the story, caring about characters, keeping it dark and gritty. You know, uh, a sense of humor. You know, it, it humanizes the characters that they're. They're, uh, it's not like the comic relief in Star Wars movies lately. <laughs> you know, it feels a little bit more real. It just makes you feel closer to the characters as people. Um, but uh, they, they, they play a lot with that. Um, you know, the, the subtleties and uh, different uh, um, formulas and different ratios of elements and uh, different pacings. But... Uh, yeah, highly recommend it. <laughs> kind of lost myself on a tangent there, but uh... <laughs> yeah. Uh, Back to Sanderson's laws of magic. Yeah, I do want to try to wrap this up kind of quickly because Maya is getting hungry. Um, the third law: expand what you already have before you add something new. And that's honestly, feel that's almost like as much world building as it is anything else, because you, if you've, you've got stuff, use it. Don't like, uh, you know, you, you, every, every one of these that you've mentioned, I've been holding back, bringing up how many ways Harry Potter breaks these. (laughs) Every single one of them is broken by Harry Potter numerous times. And I think this is one that even though there's less magic in game of Thrones, they, they actually utilize. And Lord of the Rings, you could argue the absence of, but um, I would say Lord of the Rings overall follows this. Yeah, they they introduce like you know different new magic elements, but like actually, a lot of the few magical, magic related fantastical scenarios kind of evolve, um, and stuff's added to it. Um, you know, they definitely are very reserved in adding any new magical elements in Game of Thrones, which we already established. But um, I think the Magicians does that, too. Um, they do have a lot of magical elements because there is a lot of different magic. Um, but they do a lot of expanding upon, like, their foundations and, you know, things that are established. You know, they don't... It's not like they disappear to make room for something new. You know what I mean? Um, and they're not forgotten about. 
you know, the, the core laws of the magic is not forgotten about. Um, but they do a lot of expanding and evolving um, and building upon, you know, what, what we defined, you know, and that doesn't change as they introduce new elements or new, or new magic, uh, rather. I don't know if Harry Potter's like that. I think it's just a lot of new magic elements, if I'm correct, right? Harry Potter's just bad. Yeah, like, okay. So you'd think that because the the core aspect of the setting is that it's wizard school, you would think it's a hard magic, right? Because no. you, you have, yeah, you have... <sighs> Every book, they introduce something completely new... Like, book two introduces the Time Turners, um, and those don't come back until book six, where they're getting destroyed because they would break the plot if they were actually used. Um, Except they aren't actually all destroyed, because in the play that Rowling writes, they're included, that happens after all of the books conclude. I think it's a play, at least. I it's bad. And none of the good magicians use a death curse, even in self-defense. Yeah, no, nobody's allowed to commit murder as a treat. And frankly, that's cringe. It's yeah, I I found that to be like the most off-putting thing about that book. You know, it's nobody like nobody defended my boy you know what i mean they just let him die also the protagonist wants to be a cop and doesn't want to commit violence like yeah why does this man want to be a cop if he doesn't want to use excessive violence yeah it's like you're just gonna let my 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 mans be murdered like that and not like what kind of friends are you you guys are supposed to be like <laughs> friends like i would have been thrown off death curses left and right you know if one of my friends died in front of me yeah yeah like what is that there's also you know the like massive amount of structural fat phobia but that's kind of more digging into how rowling is a terrible person yeah i'm starting to suspect that like maybe this laws is is actually not seriously meant to help writers because these are things that people would assume I, I almost feel like this is a shot at, like, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> <laughs> like a subtle, you know, like, oh, this is, like, you know, it's a little tutorial. Like, this is, you know, just help people out, you know, or getting into writing. I don't know if it's that. I think maybe this guy has a bone to pick. It's, it seems to me like the Sanderson's Laws of Magics are, like, equal parts writing tips and uh, uh, literary analysis. Um yeah. Now, before we turn this into 15 more minutes of dunking on J.K. Rowling, uh, we are running over time. So even though I really want to know why the script says the Princess Bride is a Souls-like, let's talk about that <laughs> later. Uh, you will have to ask Wiffled when he comes on later this month, because that was at his request. All right. Interesting. I think that was his request. It might have been Jake, actually, that said that. I got it from Wiffled originally. Well, I kind of want to know. <laughs> I'm very curious about this now. Yeah. Anyways, um, let's wrap this up. Do we have anything in the mailbag? Unfortunately, we don't have any new mail right now. So um, 
we really do love it uh, when people who enjoy listening to this write to us. And I know that we don't have a huge audience yet. So please, if you like this show, uh, give a, write us a letter, uh, fanfictapes at gmail.com, and share this with all your friends so that they can please also like, get in touch. comment, with and subscribe. Yes. Oh, yeah, Vesper, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, I'm pretty certain you're, you're imploring at the last episode you were on. Um, oh, I just heard today, actually, but I, I don't know what was yeah. said. Yeah, um, that's very sweet. We, we got a very, very lovely nice. letter. Aw. And it wasn't, it wasn't from anybody's mothers in here, right? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, Not fantastic. That, then goal is achieved. <laughs> yeah uh, my parents would probably just text me if they wanted to do that <laughs> yeah speaking of which like if you know the, uh, anybody has anything nice to say or you know um enjoys listening to people ramble about stuff then th- yeah send 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 a nice letter um you know feedback's great uh obviously don't know what we're doing I think more arguably it doesn't seem that we really care <laughs> how how this goes down and I, uh, I kind of enjoy that that aspect of it cuz it's really just a chat um you know it's not well we care a lot about what we do but what we care about doing is something that you can't care too much about if that makes sense yeah it's very free form I, I kind of enjoy this um, I enjoy hearing everybody's kind of like free opinion on things and uh, but yeah like uh, share I guess beyond writing or subscribing um, pass it along um, maybe someone else enjoys just hearing people chat um, oh, that, that about a topic um, you know I, I don't really know what I am here for um, so I'm doing my best to at least be a good salesman um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Is that correct? Do you feel like maybe that's kind of the format? Is it's like free form thoughts Absolutely. on topics? Is uh, what's happening here? The, um, because it wasn't yeah. even defined to me what we're doing. <laughs> um, I even I even I even texted you. I said, "So what exactly are we doing?" And this is like the second time like I've been here. So <laughs> yeah, uh, when making the podcast with Ian, and this happened. This discussion probably happened back in October of 2022, and we're like, okay, we're going to do a podcast again, and we're going to keep at it. What, what's it going to be like? We decided on kind of first and foremost having fun. Secondly, Fantastic. chat with friends. And the third thing on the list is make a podcast. So this is like our own Sanderson's Law, <laughs> you would say. But it's but it, but they're good. I, I kind of i I'm for one hundred percent behind this this kind of this this uh yeah this formula. <laughs> okay, so I guess that's what we're doing. Um, so <laughs> I hope that's been helpful to anybody listening. Um, if you think that like wow this podcast isn't that great because it has a lot of it just seems like people talking then um jokes on you that's exactly what it is 
Um, so if you do enjoy that, uh, I'd say go, if you can, go one step beyond further and maybe send it to somebody who might enjoy listening to something like this in the background while they're eating lunch at work or, you know, getting work done. Um, it would be very appreciated. All right. We've even gone on further diatribes than I intended. <laughs> Oops. Um, you can also find us on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter is at FanFictionTapes, capital F, capital T. Uh, it's supposed to be called X now, but... Um, Elon Musk Elon is Musk, a dumb. Yeah. I, look, Muskrat, if you're listening, one, go f*** yourself. Two... I'm not feeling your baby ego man rage from the 90s. That shit's older than me. Let it go. Yeah, I liked him better when he made cool cars. I don't know what all when this was that? extra stuff is for. <laughs> Aesthetically, Teslas are cool. Everything past aesthetics, though, don't buy a Tesla. It's, I like um, to think I stay in my lane when I can, you know. <laughs> all right. We got distracted again. Maybe we just cut that out. How's that? <laughs> yeah, probably. All right. I am and have been Maya, and today I was joined by... Uh, Vesper, and... As always, I am Ian. Until next time, bye.